Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire. We're joined, as we usually are, by the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always good to see you. Hey, Brandon. How's it going in Orlando? It's going well, going well. Now, we you had a an amazing incident in your in your region there of Santa Barbara, mm. Ventura. I'm going to let you tell about it here. Amazing might not even be the right descriptor, but one of the priests there, Father Aloysius, who is known as Father Al in the Ventura region, just underwent uh, an almost unbelievable series of events. Tell us what happened. Yeah, it's beautifully written up, by the way. It appeared in the Angelus, which is our Catholic newspaper here in L.A., and we put it up on the, our Facebook page. So you can find the details there. But Father Al is pastor in Ventura. He's from Nigeria, went home at Christmas time to see his family. Make a long story short, while he's driving to see his family, bandits come out on the road with guns, open fire, killed, I think, a couple people in the car behind him, shot Father Al in the abdomen. He made it eventually to a truck stop where he was in danger of bleeding out, eventually got help, was brought to a clinic where there, was, there were no doctors, then from the clinic to finally a hospital. They operated on him. So he survived, and I got the word back here when he was in that hospital. So we knew he was alive, and we also knew that if they found out that he had American connections, <clears throat> he'd be in danger of uh, kidnapping. So we kept the story very quiet back here, and we monitored the situation to make sure he was okay, and we, we tried to get him home as quickly as possible. We finally did, and now once he's back in Ventura, we decided we could tell the story. But it's beautifully told in this article, and he approached it with tremendous uh, courage and, and spiritual alertness. So it's a, it's a beautiful story in its own way, how this priest really faced death, but then came through this terrible struggle. And um, I went the morning after we heard, I heard on a Saturday, I went to the, his parish and spoke at all the masses and told the people about this. And I didn't tell them in so many words, but I was kind of preparing them for his death, because we had heard it was a very dire situation. So thank God he survived, and he's back in his parish now in Ventura. Oh, I, I can't even imagine as a parishioner yeah. seeing the bishop come into your church and tell you, hey, got some news for you. Your, your pastor has been shot and might be killed pretty soon. It, yeah. It's almost unbelievable. It was, but thank God. All right. Well, let's turn to the topic of discussion for today, which is something called disagreement fatigue. Now, I'm getting that term from an evangelical Christian apologist named Natasha Crane. I've been reading her for a while and like her work. She's a author and a mother, and she writes books for parents teaching how to how to share apologetics with their children. But she recently wrote an article titled Disagreement Fatigue in 2020, How the Events of the Year Will Shape Christian Interactions in 2020 and Beyond. Now, she's writing mainly for evangelicals, but I thought there was a lot of resonance for Catholics, and you and I could kick around the article a little bit. She she shared five points. We're not going to go through all of them. Maybe we'll we'll tackle a few of them. But in the introduction, she says that 2020 was a year filled with disagreement, and I'm sure none of our listeners will disagree with right. that statement, right? We all know from the political climate to the cultural climate to the even the church climate, disagreement is everywhere. Uh, but Natasha says, of course, disagreement is a kinder, kinder, gentler word for much of the chaotic, nasty, and sometimes even violent conflict that our culture responded to through this worldwide pandemic. 
Um, Christians certainly weren't immune to this, she says. In many cases, these wars were most heated within the body of Christ. Maybe let's start there, Bishop. Was that your sense, too, that we could maybe categorize 2020, among other things, as a great year of conflict and disagreement? Oh, I think so. Uh, we saw it on the streets of our cities. But you also, you know, we live in the Internet world, and um, it's, a, it's a pretty rough and tumble place to begin with. But I, I felt last year, too, there was an uptick in the sort of verbal violence on, online, in comboxes, um, on Twitter, places like that. And yeah, it seemed like everybody was mad at everybody else. And there was a lot of snark and sarcasm and, and personal attack, ad hominem language. And yeah, I think it got worse last year for sure. And part of that could have been we were also cooped up. <laughs> you know, we, we were in lockdown and we were probably venting our spleens a bit, you know, online. But yeah, I think it was a pretty rough year. So that part's not too surprising. That's not a revelation to say last year was a year of disagreement. However, Natasha Crane then says, I've noticed a concerning pattern of response to all of this conflict in recent weeks, particularly on social media. Fatigue has led many Christians to avoid Mm -hmm. any kind of disagreement. She says, I'm concerned that the disagreement fatigue of 2020 will shape how Christians interact with each other and secular culture for a long time to come. And then so from there, she shares these five trends. Let's, Let's talk about the first one here. It's her prediction that in the coming years, as a result of this 2020 conflictual year, more Christians will be hesitant to speak publicly about their faith. Can you see that pattern already emerging? Yeah, no, I would say my instinct is it's been there for a long time. Um, It's in the etiquette of our society. You know, we tend to be wary of those who wear religion on their sleeve. We live in a sort of tolerant society. Religion, you know, let's face it, is is kind of a dangerous topic. You know, my mother used to say that when we were kids, like, don't talk about, you know, politics. It was politics, religion, or I think in, in her day, or your cigarette brand. Those were the three things you weren't <laughs> supposed to talk about. Now people don't smoke cigarettes that much, but in her day they did. But, you know, okay, politics and religion, stay away from those if you want to stay away from a fight. So I think it's been true in America for a long time. But I would agree with her. I think it's it's gotten worse. And... The woke culture has certainly exacerbated the situation because everybody is on eggshells. You know, it's like walking through an ideological minefield every time we open our mouths that we're going to be offending somebody. And then religion, are you kidding, is one of the most volatile topics to bring up. So I do get that, that, you know, we're just afraid to say even that we're Christians. Well, the trouble, Brandon, as we both know, is you, you just can't accept that scenario as a Christian because it's essential to our lives that we evangelize. You know, as Paul says, I mean, woe to me if I do not evangelize. Well, that's true of every baptized person. We're all prophets. We're, we're commissioned to announce the gospel. So, or, you know, in uh, St. Peter saying, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So that's not an option uh, for us. It's not something that a few Christians do. So that's dangerous. It is. It's a cultural... Um, scenario that is not helpful for Christians. I think I've noticed a lot of, uh, among a lot of my friends, that they're increasingly hesitant to speak out about their Christian beliefs, in part because the conviction behind those beliefs 
isn't that strong. And in decades past, they might have felt free to talk about their faith, even if it was privatized and subjectified. It was their personal preference that I'm Catholic versus some other tradition. But now the overwhelming pressures of the culture have reduced that privatization, that subjectivized faith so deep within us that we feel well, I don't, you know, I have nothing to offer people around me. It's just, it's kind of my arbitrary subjective preference. Do you find this correlation between a lack of conviction and a lack of willingness to publicly discuss sure. your faith? Yeah, I mean, if religion is construed as a hobby, so I've got my little hobby and you got different hobbies and, you know, I might say, hey, you know, I like playing cards or I like playing golf, but I'm not going to become an evangelist for it. I'm not going to try to, you know, knock you over the head with it and say, well, you should be a golfer too, you know. So if religion is seen along those lines, uh, not making truth claims, not making any objective claim about the reality of things, well then, yeah, just keep quiet about it. And if, you know, if someone's interested, I suppose you could say, yeah, I'm a golfer too. And, but but the, the move to evangelize is repugnant to that understanding of a privatized, hobbyized understanding of religion. But that's been around for a long time in our culture, I'm afraid. Here's a second trend that Natasha Crane sees. Christians will increasingly see apologetics as a contributor to unhealthy disagreement. Mm -hmm. She says, our society thinks that Christianity is not only false in many of its claims, but also morally wrong. And so it's the task of apologetics to show, out of love for our neighbor, that Christianity is both true and beautiful. Natasha also says that it's not just that individual Christians will be leery about offering a defense or an explanation for their faith, but that the whole realm of apologetics will become less popular in the church, that that the task of apologetics, including people like us, will be convincing Christians that apologetics matters and is still worth engaging in. This, Bishop, gets right to the heart of your recent book, Arguing Religion. You, you're saying now's not the time to shut down apologetics and good argument, but to raise it up, we should be doing more of it now than ever before. Right, but you know, the trouble, as we both know, Brandon, is a lot of people have never really been trained in how to do that, like how to have a good argument with someone, which is why our exchanges on, let's say, the social media often devolve into like snarky quips. And I find, especially among younger people, I don't want to sound like an old fogey here, but that they've so learned that from social media, that that's the way you respond by email or, you know, on Twitter or in the com box. And so the snarky one-liner comeback is mistaken for an argument. You know? It's not an argument at all, because an argument is done in love, and it's meant to move toward the truth. That's the mark of a, a real argument. In other words, you're willing the good of the other. You're not, you're not trying to put the other down or just make a snarky, you know, sarcastic statement. And it's meant to move you toward the truth. Let me give you a little hint. People say, okay, well, Bishop, how do you argue? Can I propose a little uh, two-step? And it's inspired by Thomas Aquinas. Someone makes a claim, right, against something you believe. Here's the first step. Identify something in that claim that's right. Because invariably there will be, unless the person is completely insane or or cruel or whatever. But there's a 99% chance that something the person said is right. There's something true in the observation, right? So point that out. Begin not with, you're an idiot, or shut up, but begin with, yeah, you know what, actually, something you're saying here is true, and, 
and a lot of people in our tradition would say the same thing, and et cetera. Okay, there's step one. Now, you've accomplished a lot of things by that step. You've, you've um, maybe diffused a, a conflict. You've complimented your interlocutor. You've shown that you've listened, right? You're, you're not just jumping to a, to a snarky response. You've listened to the argument that they've made. Okay, so there's the first move, is acknowledge something that's true in it. Here's the second little simple move. Distinguish. Make the distinction that brings out where you think uh, what you're saying is true over and against the, uh, the claim they're making. So you've acknowledged what's good in it. Great. Now, as Thomas would say, distinguo. Now I'll make a distinction that shows, yeah, but here's a point that I think you're missing or that here's, here's the argument I, I want to make. And based upon that distinction, this perspective now comes into the light in a fresh way, you know. Uh, I, just to make this a little more concrete, someone classically will say, you know, there's no God because there's so much suffering in the world. Classical argument, is it right? Yeah, in a lot of ways. That there is great suffering, yes. That it poses a challenge to belief in an all-good God, yeah, absolutely. Thomas Aquinas admits that. So, yeah, you're, you're right. And a lot of really smart people have said that. But let me make a distinction now to show I think you're overlooking a, a possibility that there's a, a third way, namely that God permits suffering to bring about a greater good. You know? So that's how Thomas does it. It's a little two-step dance. Acknowledge the truth of it. Make the distinction. Now, now watch something here. Instead of simply fighting, so you say A, I say not A, and bop, 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 and now snark, 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 we fight. What I proposed is like a little dance. So we'll take two steps together. Now, a dance means we're, we're kind of doing this together, right? More to it, we're kind of dancing, I hope, in the direction of the truth. <laughs> you know, we're actually moving together toward something beyond both of us, which is the fullness of truth. Now, let's say that person, okay, okay, I appreciate, you know, he, he acknowledged something right, what I said, and he's made a distinction, and so now I'm going to answer back. Yeah, yeah, but I think, okay. Now, same thing, two-step. Yes, something you've said there is right, and here, but let me make a further refining distinction. Now we've taken a little further dance together toward the truth. That's called argument. Now, see, maybe, Brandon, we, it, we had a better word. Latin might be ratio, uh, but no one knows what that means in English. Because um, argument just has a negative overtone. Argument sounds like, ah, 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 ah. it's argument, right? But what I'm describing is what? What word can we use? It's a, it's a ratiocination, <laughs> but no one knows what that means. It's a, you know what I'm saying? But it, it's this little kind of two-step move. Acknowledge, distinguish. Acknowledge, distinguish. And then together, the two of you are moving in love toward the truth. That's the way we can disagree with each other. I'd encourage listeners to check out Bishop Barron's recent dialogue with Alex O'Connor, mm -hmm. the well-known uh, atheist online, which was recently released. I think by the time we air this episode, mm -hmm. it will have just came out. Um, a long, almost two-hour discussion where you see this dance of, of two smart people who disagree on a lot of major things, but they're, they're sharing this argument, this disagreement in a healthy way. Um, Bishop, I've also noticed among my generation, so I don't know how true this is of, of your peers and your uh, generation, but among millennials, maybe the generation bef uh, after me, the Generation Z, 
there's just almost a complete allergy to any kind of disagreement at all. Yeah. We, we just yeah. don't sense, we're not comfortable sharing different views with people we love, our friends and our family. I sense that in previous generations, you could have people like we've used the example of G.K. Chesterton and George Bernard Shaw who yeah. disagreed about basically everything <laughs> yeah. and were very close friends. Yeah. But today, we want to dissolve any differences, any disagreements. We, Our hyper-tolerance wants to you know, wash over anything that distinguishes us from one another. We're, we're all equally good. All beliefs are equally true. Do you detect this, this allergy to uh, disagreement and what effect do you think that's eventually going to have when my generation starts to get older? Yeah, God help us. No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, Brandon, a part of it is that little word uh, that you hear all the time, which is safe, right? I want to be safe, safety, safe space. I remember talking about this with uh, with Jordan Peterson, you know, because he does a lot of work in the hero's right journey, which is a mythic archetype. The hero begins in the ordered space, right, of of, of civilization, but all the hero uh, adventures involve a moving out of the safe space into a chaotic space, a disordered space, someplace that's that's frightening and and it's it's un uh, it's disordered, and then the hero brings order to it, and he expands thereby the, uh, the realm of order. So, I mean, that's every story you could tell from the ancient myths to Bilbo and Frodo, right? The same thing of Bilbo has to leave the safe space of his little hobbit hole to go on an adventure. And Frodo, then the next generation, had the same thing, has to leave the Shire to go out on adventure. And that's how the hero accomplishes this great benefit for the rest of us, right? Well, See the word safety. In all the hero journey stories, the hero faces this temptation to stay in the safe space. Um, again, Tolkien is really good on that, right? It's, and these beautiful little hobbit holes with the doilies and the furniture and the fire and the food and everyone's well fed and protected and the big door to keep enemies out. And it's a very nice safe space. But Gandalf has to come kind of breaking into that safe space and summoning Bilbo and eventually Frodo off to adventure, you know. Can you see argument? Here's my point. Can you see argument, as I was describing it, as a kind of moving out of a safe space? The, the safe space of what I know, what I got figured out. Someone's threatening my safe space with a counter position. So, okay, snark, 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 fight, 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 close the door, close the windows, leave me alone. Well, okay, that's one way to do it, but it means you're never going to go on an adventure. You're never going to be summoned by your interlocutor into a, a new space. Um, dangerous? Yeah, it is a little bit. Okay, grow up. That's, what's, that's life. That's the adventure. So intellectually speaking, a real argument is going on adventure. It's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow this now where it leads. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to see how far this goes. And and um, it's threatening me a bit, yeah, yeah, making me uneasy, probably. So that's the danger to me, Brandon, is a generation that's so predicated upon keeping ourselves safe will be a generation that's afraid of adventure. And if you're afraid of adventure, then you're not going to grow. You won't be alive. You know, it's the old, the old uh, cliche of, of the boat in the harbor. You know, it's safe in the harbor, but boats aren't meant for harbors. They're meant for the open sea. 
So that means they're going to get knocked around. Eventually, they're going to sink. Okay, that's the way it goes. But at least um, it got out in the open sea. So that'd be, I sound like an old fogey, I suppose, but that'd be my fear of, of a generation that's so predicated upon keeping ourselves safe. Your descriptions and your analogies there call, in my mind, call to my mind all the great evangelists and missionaries of yeah. our church, people who were most effective at convincing people to change their views about God or faith or religion. But as a, as a prerequisite, they had this easy comfortability with disagreement. They would go into new cultures or to meet new people that they knew believed diametrically opposed things than they did, but they didn't avoid them. They went into it knowing and, and becoming comfortable with that fact as a prerequisite to then engaging in, in dialogue and argument. You know, a good example there, again, is Karol uh, Wojtyla. Uh, so in his Polish context, he deals first with the Nazis, then the maybe slightly less obnoxious communists come in. But Wojtyla, who's a philosopher by nature, decided, well, okay, I'm going to learn Marx better than these people know him. I'm going to study Marx. And so he was able to out-argue them on their own terms. And I love the story. I've heard it from a couple of sources that when Wojtyla went into the conclave that elected him pope in 78, they, they all bring in reading material, right? He brought in a Marxist philosophical journal. And that's, that was typical of him. Like, well, okay, I, I've got to know my opponents here. I have to know their best arguments. And I'm not going to read some little popular uh, straw man that I can knock down. I'm going to try to read their most serious people. Good. That's a good instinct. But see, he was, a, he was an adventurer, uh, Karl Wojtyla, which is why as Pope, he says, Duke and Altum, you know, go out in the depths. Stop horsing around in the shallows, you know. And see, the shallows are safe space. I can sort of put my feet in the water and splash about. But we're not meant for that. We're meant to go out in the deep. That's where the fish are, and that's where excitement is, you know. So um, intellectually, Duke and Altum, go out in, into the depths. Uh, but you can only do that if you've got some smarts and you've got some courage, right? You need both those things. Otherwise, we're going to stay in our hobbit holes. <laughs> Let's look at one more of these trends that Natasha Crane predicts as a result of the disagreement fatigue of 2020. She predicts that belief in a generic God will continue to be acceptable in culture, but belief in Jesus as God mm -hmm will become increasingly gosh. She says, personal belief in a generic God will be uh, acceptable because it requires very little from a person. She thinks that uh, general God sentiments, such as prayers for you, or God bless you, or God mm -hmm. love you, will continue to be safe and used because they aren't specific enough to, to offend anyone. Yeah. But any mention of Jesus or the particularities of Christianity will increasingly become offensive. Do, do you see this trend already happening right now? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, it's been around in a way for a long time. Uh, think of the Enlightenment's instinct to move toward a kind of a deist conception of God. That's a generic God. It's sort of literally at a safe distance from the world, not posing any particular threat to us. Uh, wouldn't all people of goodwill kind of accept the existence of some ultimate cause of things? So, yeah, it's, you know, true as far as it goes, but it's, it's true in a non-threatening way. Jesus... Here's God in the flesh who awakened the absolute rebellion of the human race to the point where they kill them. That's a really subversive message in itself. The cross, therefore, is judgment upon the world, and it reveals the deep, deep dysfunction of the world, better than any 
thing else. And then Jesus risen from the dead, which means God's love is more powerful than anything that's in the world, and that Jesus is the rightful Lord of all people and all nations. Yeah, that's very subversive. And the powers from the first century until today have always intuited that, which is why either this generic sense of God or a sort of vaguely symbolic account of the resurrection has always been attractive. Because, oh, well, that's fine. You know, sure, believe that if you want. It's a nice little myth and so on. But the real thing, you know, uh, Christianity with um, the gloves off, th that's a different proposition. Because now we see God in judgment upon the world and God assuming in Christ lordship over the world. That's a much more dangerous business. But that's what we're about. That's evangelization, right? So I, I do get that. If we can... You know, we flatten out the idea of God and we mythologize Jesus. Sure, we become uh, inoffensive. But, gosh, name one great Christian saint who is inoffensive. <laughs> I can't think of one. All right, Natasha closes out the article with this line. I want to see if, if you think this is good advice for Christians. She says, friends, 2021 is not the year to succumb to 2020-induced disagreement fatigue. It's a time to speak boldly when opportunities arise. Yes, we're all tired, but it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. May we rest in that more than we rest in our desire to avoid disagreement. Good advice? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, because disagreement in itself is not a, a bad thing. Uh, because, see, when you make a judgment, that means you made a decision. You said there's a lot of bright ideas, but, but I think this is the right idea among all the different bright ideas. So when you say, I'm a Christian, you are, I'm sorry, you are saying, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not an atheist. So you're saying, not, 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 not. You're, you're cutting a lot of options off. Now, there are points of contact, and yes, 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 all those good things. But it's also making a judgment. I'm disagreeing with you. Okay, fine. Now, now, Let's do the dance. If, if you want to have, you know, a, an ongoing discussion, great. Acknowledge, distinguish. Acknowledge, distinguish. Acknowledge, distinguish. Fine, fine. It's nonviolent. It's loving. Uh, it's moving toward the truth. But it's predicated upon some fundamental disagreements. Great, fine. That's part of the adventure. Well, it's time now for our listener question. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, please send it to us by visiting the website askbishopbarron.com. There you can record your question on any device. Today we have a good one from Marcy in Newberry Park. She's asking about Jesus and how he existed before the incarnation. Pretty interesting question. Here it is. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Marcy from Newberry Park. And my question for you is, what form was Jesus in before the Incarnation? So we know that Christ existed for all time, but at one point he had a human life and he had the DNA of his mom, Mary, the Blessed Mother. But before that, how could we envision Christ? Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you. It's a question that uh, has been entertained by a lot of theologians. And you kind of gave the answer in some ways there. So from all eternity, the Logos 
exists as the word of the Father, so within the life of the Trinity, the word that will become flesh has always been, always will be. And so I can recognize Jesus in that sense. Some of the fathers talked about this, that there never was a time when the Logos was asarkos, meaning without flesh. And what they meant was that from the beginning, the father always envisioned the son becoming flesh. It was part of the divine intention from the beginning. Now, that's a more Scotist understanding than Thomas, to use our Western terms, that even if we hadn't sinned, the word would have become flesh to, to bring creation to its fulfillment. So in that way, you could say the incarnation was always in the mind of the Father from all eternity, and therefore the Son, the word, was at least implicitly connected to flesh. But at a particular point in time, you're right, at this moment in history, we say that the human nature of Jesus emerged. Now, the human nature of Jesus is a creature, just as I'm a creature, the human nature of Jesus is, is a created, you know, material reality, which then began to have a relationship to the Logos. We say the Logos took to himself a human nature. And so it didn't change the Logos, but there was a, there was a new type of relationship between this created human nature and the Logos, and we call that the incarnation. Um, so I, I guess I would parse it that way. The basic answer is, from all eternity, Jesus is the, is the Logos. But maybe with the incarnation, the becoming sarks, becoming flesh, always in the mind of the Father. Well, thanks for that great question, Marcy, and thanks to all of you for listening and watching this episode. A couple reminders, I shared them last week, but I wanted to mention them again. First, if you haven't already seen our new Rosary Initiative, I encourage you to check it out. It's at wordonfire.org rosary. We have a bunch of videos and audio downloads there, including a short video on why pray the rosary. This might be good to share with friends who have never prayed the rosary before and are a little curious about it. Another on how to pray the rosary, maybe to share with that same group. And then we have four videos that walk through each of the sets of mysteries of the rosary with Bishop Barron offering reflections on each biblical mystery. So they're beautifully made, gorgeous music, stunning artwork, very mystically profound. I encourage you to, to watch them, pray with them, maybe get family and friends to join you while you do it. Again, you can find it at wordonfire.org rosary. Also, I encourage you to pick up your copy of our new book, The Word on Fire Vatican II Collection. It includes the four major documents of Vatican II surrounded by commentary from Bishop Barron and each of the four post-conciliar popes. So it helps you to not only become introduced to these documents, but understand them in the heart of the church. You can find that at wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.